you've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Chat with Traders is sponsored by Trade the Pool. Are concerns about limited buying power, insufficient capital, or fear of losing your own money preventing you from advancing your trading capabilities? Trade the Pool is an online stock trading prop firm that offers funding for stock traders. Demonstrate your skills, trade their capital, and keep your profits. You can engage in intraday trading and now swing trading on Trade the Pool with any U.S. stock or ETF. The procedure is straightforward. Pay an evaluation fee, successfully complete the evaluation, and get funded. Visit tradethepool.com forward slash chat to learn more. Markets, speculation, and risk. This is the Chat with Traders podcast, hosted by Aaron Fifield. Hey team, I hope you're doing fantastic. This is episode 154. Welcome. Coming up is a chat I had with Andreas Kokorinas. Andreas lives in London and in 2013, he co-founded Stratagem Technologies, a tech startup using AI and machine learning to trade sports as a financial product. These sports predominantly include football, tennis, and basketball. But for Andreas, his roots are in trading instruments and markets that most of us are more accustomed to. He's worked for the likes of Morgan Stanley and Deutsche Bank, and before Stratagem came to be, he was trading at deep value. From listening to this episode, you'll hear a few interesting things. Firstly, Andreas speaks about his exit from financial markets and entry to sports betting and some of the other obscure markets he's considered where rigorous trading principles could quite possibly be applied also. Then, as sports markets exist mainly for the purpose of entertainment, what opportunities does this present for sophisticated investors and what types of information Stratagem is using to make predictions? And then we go out with some chatter about AI and whether modern technology can realistically generate superior returns compared to more traditional approaches. I think Andreas struggled a little bit to uh, sit still for the duration of this podcast, so I'll just apologize for any rustling you happen to hear coming from his side of the track. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, here it is, my conversation with Andreas Kokorinas. Now you're going to ask me all the embarrassing questions you want to ask. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, well, let's get going because we're, um, you know, we've got limited time here. So, you know, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this, but just so we can get a bit of uh, an understanding from where you've come from and how you've arrived at the point of where you're at right now, what is your background in trading like? What have you been doing for the past kind of 15 years or more? So I started in 1997, 98, initially as an intern for 
a bank that doesn't exist right now called SG Warburg uh, on the FX options desk. That was before the euro. And then after university and grad school, uh, because I'm Greek, I ended up uh, starting to work at Morgan Stanley on the emerging markets desk. And again, I was an options trader, so mostly derivatives and then long-dated uh, derivatives and, and so on and so forth. So I did that for a few years, uh, and I ended up being the guy that sort of they were plugging into whenever there were major crises around the world. Um, and after that, I got given the opportunity to move to New York when the uh, structured credit derivatives market was picking up. So. Uh, around 2004, I think it was, I moved to New York and for the second time I had, I had lived there for a little while before that. Um, and I ended up trading, you know, default swaps for, for during the first crisis, the auto crisis of 2000, 2005. Uh, and that was sort of the impetus of a lot of the things that I started doing in my professional life, which was basically looking at relationships between different asset classes. So in this case would be equity versus credit, would be equity options versus credit derivatives and and so on and so forth. And I kind of basically ended up doing that for about 13, 14 years. Yeah. So that's sort of just my background. Okay. And then just before you started Stratagem, you were working at a place, uh, Deep Value. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about some of the things that they were involved with? Yeah. So when, when I left my sort of hedge fund job at Fortress, um, I was one of the impetus of, of those of those of the move was that essentially technology is gonna eat the lunch of most traders and I needed to get really uh, a good understanding of of the electronification of markets really. And um uh deep value was uh, set up by a guy that I've known for a long time. And it's essentially an algorithmic trader predominantly focused on the New York Stock Exchange. So for a while, it had exclusive rights to sort of selling things like VWAP algos and TWAP algos on the New York Stock Exchange and then basically trading flows on the back of it. Uh, so I took a stake in the company and I basically got immersed into the R&D uh, group at uh, Deep Value with the idea of trying to bring, you know, some of the background as a relative value trader and as a micro trader into the more automated type of trading. Uh, and it was really useful because I learned a lot about essentially the various technology stacks that you can use for algorithmic trading uh i i got a chance to sort of you know build my own strategy automated strategies and and then really think about the transition and the process that you go from i'm just a trader who puts on a trade because as a human trader there's a a finite limit to the number of trades you can do on a given day uh mainly because you have to do homework you have to sort of pick your securities you have to think about entry and exit points and so on and so forth Whereas with a machine, really it's a function of your, of your, of your compute power and the volatility in the market. So I learned a lot about a lot of those things. And, um, that was sort of in part 
some of the impetus to start Stratagem. Okay, so in many ways, this was the first time you'd you'd actually been exposed to algorithmic trading and a lot of the automation. Yeah, on a, on a scalable way, yes. Definitely. Okay, okay. All right, well, just tell us a little bit about what is Stratagem and also uh, give us a bit of an idea on how it's growing because you've been doing it for a couple of years now. So I think you've got a, a, a sizable team behind you now. So yeah, just give us a quick rundown on Stratagem and then we'll, um, we'll probably get into the nitty gritty. <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so Stratagem is essentially designed from the ground up to be a machine learning first trading company. So, uh, with with a particular focus at, at least for the time being in in the sports markets so we started the company uh originally sort of at the early to mid 2012 and it started off my living room with with uh, uh two guys that still work at strategy um and the idea was can we approach the sports betting market with the same lens that we look at financial markets rather than just as a value-based trader because as a sidestep most of the people who who are professional gamblers or quantitative prop traders in gambling and so on and so forth have a particular approach which is they develop their own model and they try to find essentially what they call value which is really a mispricing between the market and and their model over the long run and that difference is called the edge and they try to maximize you know the amount of volume they put through the market on a given period to capture that edge we believe there are you know all sorts of different things you can do around that concept that are uh that come as an origin from financial markets so you know rigorous risk control uh risk management take profit looking at sort of bets as time series, you know, think, things like that, looking at the mean reversion and the trends within, within particular games. So all of these things have essentially a need for large data manipulation and scalable computing power. So I started off Stratagem with a purpose of basically building a company that will be focused on those things uh, with the underlying premise that we also want to be experts uh, in a very, very uh, specific niche of how do you apply machine learning in non-stationary trading environments. Uh, so that's really what we do. Um, and that sort of involves essentially three things, which is collecting lots of different sources of data and unifying them in a way that can give you a predictive signal, building the technology stack to deploy that signal, and then uh, doing research around the various trading algos that you will put into the market once you have the data and the technology stack. Okay, and Stratagem, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it it's a it's essentially a hedge fund, right? And there's also another part to it, which is more of a yeah. So so if you if you think about this sort of infrastructure, essentially we tend to think about the products you can cut off it and. You know, a hedge fund is an investment vehicle, i.e. an investment product. And that's sort of one of the things that we, quote unquote, offer to people, which is not something that's uh, uh, very widely available. Uh, and then we also offer a couple of products that are more, uh, you know, tailored to the individual trader. So we offer something which we call Strata Pro, which is 
essentially a Bloomberg-like terminal for sports betting. And we offer StrataBet, which is, you know, similar to the ticker tape, I would say, for sports. It gives you automated inside statistical artifacts that are happening within football games right into your phone. Now, before you actually decided to settle on the idea of sports betting, you also looked into a couple other avenues as well. Do you want to share what they were? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the really the idea was, you know, as a trader in the sort of broad, deep financial markets so of fixed income, equity, and so on and so forth, uh, you learn a set of skills and you learn an understanding really about how markets move and, and what can cause prices to move. And um, I, I, had, uh, I had wanted to find markets that still were not as saturated by human expertise or professional trading expertise. As, uh, and then I looked at uh, cryptocurrencies, uh, peer-to-peer lending, uh, sports bets, and then online advertising space. So the 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 type of of uh, of uh, trading you can do sort of on the online advertising exchanges that is run by you know Google and Microsoft and so on and so forth. Okay, so after exploring or looking into all those different different avenues, why did you decide to roll with sports betting? Yeah, so the, there's a couple of reasons. So the the first one is it's a growing market, so it's uh, it's you know, sports is around us everywhere and there's more and more uh, accessibility to, to, you know, in-play in play, uh, sports viewing and therefore sort of in-play trading. It's a 24-hour market really because you can sort of trade a sporting event everywhere in the world. It's, it's fairly fragmented, therefore it's fairly inefficient. And by that I mean the concept of an exchange, the way it exists in financial markets, doesn't really exist, right? So there's not a central clearing counterparty. There's not a place where the price is predominantly driven by the supply and demand of everybody, and 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 you can have one one touch point to the market. Uh, the technology stack is is fairly arcane, uh, and and more importantly, there is a lack of. Um, sophisticated human capital that has gone into the market. Now, having said that, there's a couple of outfits and people who have been extremely successful in in the sports betting space. Uh, but I think predominantly the reason is because there haven't been, you know, that many people exploring and applying uh, rigorous trading principles as in is in other markets. So if I put all those together, I thought that, and, and more importantly, sorry, another thing that I that I think is really important is that the asset class is really, really short duration. So by that I mean is if you think about a trading day, you start at the beginning of the day and you end at the beginning of the day with cash. So you can lever yourself up multiple times uh, without really needing a very big balance sheet to take positions. So you, could, so you can be a really big trader without needing to hold a very big cash balance. Whereas in a hedge fund space, it, it's kind of the other way. You basically have a large asset pool and you have to hold a lot of it as an encumbered cash and you can only trade with a small fraction of what you have. So it makes the game completely different, right? You're not as reliant on, on holding large cash balances. It really sort of allows you to recycle things. And it's very akin to, you know, high frequency 
or short-term systematic trading that you'll see in, in financial markets. So those were really the primary drivers for me to decide to go into sports drivers. Yeah, and had this been like a hobby, like had this been something that you had a little bit of interest in prior to launching like a full-fledged uh, fund and business, etc., around sports betting, like it, or were you completely green when you came into this? I, I would I would love to say yes, but the answer is probably no. <laughs> I've been sort of a a student of trading for a very very long time, so probably since you know the mid nineties, you know, um, and I think that sort of has been the primary driver for me, much more than the underlying market. So my basic principle is that if you have a trading process that is robust and scalable. And as long as you do enough homework to understand the fundamentals of how your market works and what drives, you know, each individual uh, formation, I guess, of prices, then it doesn't matter what you're trading. Now, I wasn't, you know, I had a passing interest into into sports bets, but nothing to the extent that it would drive me to to sort of get into the into the market as a professional. That only happened after I started spending more and more time on it, um, you know, after 2011, 2012. Right. So essentially, you know, if we were just to summarize that, you, in many ways, you kind of piggybacked on your trading experience and the trading principles, which you'd learned over 15 years or so um, to, to guide you into this this new market. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that I learned in my career is, is uh, one of the things that I had been exposed to beforehand is that it doesn't really matter. Like I, I had been exposed to a lot of different markets and I had traded a lot of different instruments. And I think that sort of gave me the confidence to kind of think about it. Because if you think about it, like a, a, a bet is really just a binary option, right? So, so if you think about it in terms of option speak, well, you know, you kind of have the main components that you would have in anything else, which is volatility. Then you would have, um, you know, realized volatility. You have your strikes and so on and so forth. So if you if you start thinking about it in, in those terms and you break it down to components that, you know, you're familiar with, then it kind of becomes easier. I would say the sports market, sports betting market has various idiosyncrasies that you learn along the way. Uh, and I think it's really important to understand price formation and price action and really, you know, what does the flow of information tell you in terms of the volume that trades? And uh, so a lot of the things that I look at is, you know, I break things into sort of, I guess, fundamentals, which, which you know, if you make the parallel between let's say the equity market and sports is really sort of, you know, you look at an earnings report. In our case, we have analysts that write previews of games. So we want to see, you know, who is the starting lineup? Is there any player who's particularly missing? What performance, what past performance is attributed to the lineup that is coming into play? Have they been having, you know, a very heavy schedule, did they have to travel a lot, and so on and so forth. So I tend to look at the, I guess, the, the valuation afterwards, you would say. So similar to other sports bet traders, I would look at basically, we have our own proprietary trading 
models, which are basically, you know, your akin to your Black Shoals model in, 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 in an options world. And we would look at, is the bet expensive or is it cheap? And why is it cheap and expensive, given the inputs that go into the model? And then finally, I look a lot about a lot about in terms of technical information and positioning. So do I know what other smart participants are doing? You know, if you, if you break down the flow that goes into the sports market, there's really, you know, mostly retail, which um, for the most part, we, we don't think has any information information edge. And then there's a couple of people which, you know, uh, similar to us, some of them with a lot longer history, who who we call syndicates, and essentially they they are information traders. They only trade if they have an edge on on the rest of the information. So uh, we tend to try and decipher the flows that um, they drive and see if if there's any information we can glean from that. So I guess one of the bigger differences that we have versus other people is we tend to look a lot at at the movements of the order book and see if the the price movement given the volume that trades is it significant or not and is it causing moves that are disproportionate to what we expect or 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 not and we have our own ways and models to basically decipher information and that's sort of the three components that we put into kind of every trading decision Okay, so I think what might be helpful is if we can hear a little bit more about the the, the sorts of bets that you're placing, right? So are you, I might be way off here, but it kind of sounds as though you're doing a lot of like in play uh, during the game bets. Would I be correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, 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 you can think about the stuff that we do as sort of broken down into three, three sort of verticals. So you can do, Bets on the given sport, right? You can do bets gave given your your uh, a view on timing. So there are what we call dead ball trades, which are basically trades that we put before the game starts and we hold until the maturity of the game. So this is your classical prototypical um, uh, sports betting, and then you do in play trading, which is essentially. Bets that you put after the game has started and you have processed information. And then the final bet is bets that you'll hold up until the end of the season. So we would look at, for example, who's going to win a league, who's going to get relegated, who's going to win, you know, come on top of the ATP, who's going to win the NBA finals, who's going to end up playing for the NBA finals and so on and so forth. And then we'll build a position, let's say for the longer ones, and then we will put you know, hedging instruments along the way. Now that's sort of, if you break down the trading, given the duration of, of, of your view. And then we also have, I guess, two types of trades. One is directional trades. So we have a view on who's going to win the game, how many goals are going to get scored and so on and so forth. Or we have relative views, which is, we think, for example, over two and a half goals is, is cheap but under four and a half goals is expensive so we will put a an, a position over two and a half and under four and a half we'll play around with the ratios we'll wait for something to happen and then we'll close the position or we'll do things for example where we will take wait for a surprise event to happen in the game like a surprise goal an early goal or something like 
and then look at the dislocation that happens in the market and then take positions appropriately and then we'll close as those things normalize. Those are broadly, you know, the strategies that we would follow. And then we would trade on all sorts of liquid markets, starting from goals and natural handicaps. And then we'll trickle down to corners, uh, which are sort of the three main markets we would look at. Okay, so which which games are you actually betting on? So we trade um, the top, I would say, 26 leagues around the world in football. And then in tennis, we trade... Uh, so that, so going back to football, that would mean, you know, here in the UK, the Premier League, English champ, League One, uh, the Spanish League, the German League, the Portuguese League, the Greek League, the Australian League, the Chinese League. So we trade basically the top 26 leagues around the world and then uh, Champions League, Europa League, uh, World Cup and, and, and European Championships in football. Uh, there's obviously a lot more leagues to trade, but these are the ones that we are sort of concentrated on. And then in tennis, we trade ATP, WTA, uh, men's and women's, everything down to challengers. And we've been mostly trading uh, three set tournaments, and now we're moving to also trade five set tournaments. And in basketball, we trade NBA, EuroLeague, and then starting to trade some of the smaller national leagues you know, that are pretty dominant, I would say, in the European area. So Greece, Spain, Turkey, Germany, Italy, uh, Russia, Finland, uh, anywhere really that there's a betting action in, in the basketball world. Okay. And are those kind of more obscure, I don't know if that's the right word, but uh, less known, less popular leagues, are they uh, more lucrative for you? Some of the smaller ones uh, tend to be more lucrative in terms of the inefficiencies. The problem is that the scalability of your trading is not is not as applicable. So really, there's a risk-reward between can we be big enough to make it worth our while or, or is it just a small passing market? On the other hand, you don't want to be really too big or go to the really, really big markets with a dominant effect because then you signal a lot of the information that you have that others may not have. So we we try to sort of have a blend between smaller leagues and bigger leagues. Obviously, the bigger leagues are very interesting because you can put big positions on. So if you think about it in absolute terms, let's say the World Cup or the Premier League, is is sort of the deepest part of the market where you could easily put um, a one to two million position on a given game. Whereas if you trade down to Australia or MLS in the US, trading somewhere between 10 and 15, 50K is, is kind of the limit of how much you can trade. Um, so that's really how we tend to think about it. In basketball, the EuroLeague and NBA are probably the deepest markets. So you can do a couple hundred K a game. Then the sizes go down um, pretty quickly. And then in tennis, I would say the the Grand Slams are really sort of the where a lot of the volume would trade and be fairly decent on those. You know, if you look at, for example, recently the the final of the ATP finals in London, you had over 
you know, 15 million got matched in one game in one of the premier sort of betting places here in the UK, which is just a fraction of what would have traded globally. Now, the, the trick there is that, as I pointed out in the beginning, there isn't one place where you can go and access all the volume. You've got to be connected to multiple venues at the same time and have the infrastructure to pull everything together to, uh, to see really the global picture of the market. So building the infrastructure is, is really a key to being successful, I would say, in sports betting. When you say that it's key to be successful in sports betting, um, playing at the levels you're playing at? Yeah, I, I, I would say just in general, like you want to make sure that you are able to observe the price action where the professionals trade because they would have information that most likely an individual wouldn't have. And uh, you, you want to make sure that you look at all the price moves up until a game starts because usually what most most professionals would do is they would wait for the public to come and place their bets and they would skew the market in a way to make attractive for them to be a late comer. Generally, people try to be as late as possible when they're placing their bets and the reason for that is they want to make sure that there's no any new piece of information that's coming into the market. There's no injuries or or anything really that could have affected the performance of either the team or, or, or a player, they want to they wanna have it, the complete up to the, before they place their bets. And also, the other factor is the market it tends to be the most liquid as you go closer to in play. So, you know, if you take, for example, today it's a Wednesday, if you look at the games that are getting played on a Saturday, usually the market w- would have opened. But it's a very wide and liquid market because there's a lot of volatility around the information of certain players. The schedule of the teams has been incredibly heavy over the last two weeks. There are certain players that may have been injured. Um, there's no tennis this week, so so for the next for the next two months, I guess. So so there's nothing to do there. But similarly for NBA, the season is kind of starting to pick up. There's more and more volume trading. You know, there's a lot of flying around, people getting injured. You know, last minute. Uh, substitutions so you want to make sure you know about all of those things before you take a position so that's one the second thing is most people need to and this kind of goes back to another question you asked need to void themselves from the emotional aspect of sports which is really it doesn't matter who you support right it's 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 a market like any other market right it's if you were trading currencies are you supposed to have a favorite currency, right? So, so it's the same thing with sports. Like it doesn't matter which the teams are. You need to look at them in a very, very objective manner, rather than I cannot play this team because I like them or <laughs> you know they have my favorite player and so on and so forth. And I think for a lot of people, it's really hard to draw the line between I'm emotional about something and I understand that fully versus versus it's my job and I kind of sit on my desk and basically I look at two teams or two players as they are two securities and really looking at, you know, the same thing as if you were reading earnings reports, you know, am I going to buy or sell this stock based on they're going to miss or beat earnings? What positions are the hedge funds accumulating? Really, you can draw a lot of parallels between, 
you know, how people trade long short equity or long short currencies versus a sports betting market. There's a lot of uh, similar factors that drive performance. You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, they took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed this century. They started at the beginning, reimagining the bond screener with an intuitive design that helps you zero in on the exact kinds of bonds you're looking for. Then they made it easier to evaluate each investment opportunity with better data in the places you need it most. Finally, they made investing in bonds as straightforward as stocks or any other asset. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash bonds podcast to get started. This podcast is sponsored by Public. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds. Are you a developing or seasoned day trader who trades the U.S. markets? Is the only thing stopping you from getting to the next level is having enough capital to trade? Trade the Pool is a unique online stock trading prop firm that funds stock traders worldwide. Not having to risk your own capital can help you focus on other things like making better decisions on your trades. There's no PDT rules to worry about. You got more than 12,000 stocks and ETFs to trade, long or short, and professional tools at your side. How you get funded is you show them your skills through a straightforward evaluation process. Once you pass the evaluation, you get funded and trade with their pool of money and split the profits. Don't let the lack of buying power, capital, or fear of losing your own money prevent you from taking your trading to the next level. Visit tradethepool.com slash chat to learn more. Now, you said a little earlier that one of the things which has attracted you to sports betting markets, uh, or sports markets, I should say, is the fact that there's a lot of retail participants, okay? And as you said, most of them, you know, it's it's probably safe to assume, mo- most of them don't have a great information edge, okay? Yeah, I, I would say there's two reasons for that is, is, is people don't have very good information. You know, they read the paper, they don't really pay attention to the details, which is kind of the reason why we've been also developing um, products for the everyday uh, trader because we think there's a gap in the market there that should be exploited which is essentially people should focus on this market right there is there is there's a lot of inefficiencies the bookmakers make a lot of money out of it and really because it's a market designed to be there for entertainment purposes so people like to place a bet when they go out with their friends uh or, or where they sit down to relax at the end of a day and so on and so forth. So they don't necessarily take it seriously, which I understand, you know, there's no, no, um, nothing against that. But on the flip side, it means that the majority of the volume that trades is really agnostic to the nuances that go into the price formation. So, you know, and the bookmakers will tend to skew prices one way or the other to make sure that they attract people to, to put those trades on. Right. Well, that's sort of what I wanted to ask you is like, to what extent are you actually trying to outsmart other retail punters compared to actually just trying to outsmart the, the bookmakers? It's, it's almost entirely 
against the bookmakers, I would say. And and in some ways, we are evolving our business model to be more of a partner to the bookmakers. And by that, I mean, we try to, we're, we're becoming slowly a third party liquidity provider to the bookmakers, like a market maker, because no one wants to lose money, right? So, so the same way if you were a hedge fund trading over the counter derivatives, you would not, and you were, say, dealing with JP Morgan, you know, the trader JP Morgan, if you're always, if he, you were always making money off him, he would be very defensive with his pricing. Now, the difference with bookmakers is they don't actually have to trade with you, right? It's not a legally enforceable contract, not forward or a future. They can basically shut you out of the market, not give you any access to liquidity. So, so the bookmakers are really the only place where you can get aggregated flow. So you have to be able to talk to a lot of them and you have to make sure that, you know, they have an advantage in giving you access. So, so we, we try to basically, you know, provide third party pricing, if you like, or liquidity information to various bookmakers in exchange for them allowing us to take some amount of the risk that they bring on their books for ourselves. So similar, I guess, to a book, to a, to a, to a market maker. And on the flip side, we probably align ourselves mostly to retail because we have opened up our infrastructure and our platform to, to individual, uh, individuals so that they can, you know, both either look or, 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 or process the same type of information that we do or learn to do what we do. And I think kind of, there's a race to the end, right? Which is, I'm looking forward to the market in five or 10 years, and hopefully we'll be as commoditized as other instruments. And people would really look at it as an alternative financial asset. And the reason is very simple is, you know, if you put your money into an uh, equity index fund, right? How much do you know about the underlying equity companies that are involved there? You know, you may have a view on the equity market and the politics around the macroeconomic policy and so on and so forth, but you kind of have a much more of an interest in what's happening in the sports field. And also the information is is more widely available if you do the homework, right? So, so really, I think people should look at sports as, you know, having a, a small proportion of their assets uh, similar to they would do, you know, in equities or bonds or currencies and so on and so forth. Now, I know that's pretty radical view, uh, but I'm hoping that, you know, by opening up uh, infrastructure and not be as opaque as other participants have been, that we would attract more people into the market. Now, just changing gears a little bit, uh, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about, I guess... Uh, the data, actually coming up with these strategies, testing them, that sort of thing, right? So why do you believe, because you're a very data-driven operation, yeah, why do you believe that sports are predictable through using essentially historical data? Like, are there fundamental reasons behind your predictions for why you believe a certain team should uh, achieve a certain outcome? Or would you say that you fall more into the camp of data mining? I think we kind of have a foot on both camps. So the predominant factor is that sports have their repeatable events, right? So if you think about 
all the algorithms that have been developed for computer games, let's say, what's interesting about them is that the rules of the game tend to be static and the same thing holds for sports, right? So in football, you have 11 players, 90 minutes plus overtime, um, you know, red cards, yellow cards, and so on and so forth. So there's no factors that are extraordinary that can drive, you know, for the most part, the sort of outcome of a game. And then the behavior of the teams, again, for the most part, as it is observable through time, can be deciphered, right? So whereas if you look at financial markets, you have, you know, micro factors that kind of drive the pricing of a security and you have micro factors. And you don't really know what's going on in the macro part of the landscape. It's, it's, it's really sort of a large amount of uncertainty. Whereas in sports, the events tend to be repeatable upon themselves, right? So if you are able to observe what's happening in 100,000 games, then for the most part, you can understand the strategies of the teams, the strategies of the coaches, how certain players play. And I think it's important to understand that for the most part, teams don't try, and I know this is going to sound a little bit counterintuitive, but let's say in the case of football, they don't try to score goals. They try to put themselves in situations of high expected value where they have the highest chances of converting those situations into a goal. By that, I mean, if you think about a shot on goal that happens on you know, three yards or five yards outside the box with one or two defenders, that has a lot higher value than a goal that gets scored from a free kick, you know, 25 yards out from an angle with with uh, 11 players in front of you, right? That th- those you need to be able to look at those differences uh, in how those situations result into an outcome, and I think the same thing goes for basketball, where if you look at the emergence of the Golden State Warriors and how they've been driving this sort of three-point shooting. Well, really, what does that mean? It means that, you know, maybe your percentage of hitting the three-pointers is lower than hitting your two-pointers, but the expected value of three-pointers is a lot higher. So, you know, people tend, people, I guess, in the professional sports environments tend to look a lot at expected values, and we are kind of the same. So I think that's something that is very, very particular to sports, and I like the fact that it's, it's, there's a drift to it and then there's variance around it. So if you can put your head around those two concepts, you can be really good at it. So I would say that's sort of the, the fundamental part. And then the other part is to really look at the motivation of the teams, right? So a team is a business like, like uh, any other. So, you know, teams want to do well because it results to a lot of money. So they will try to win specific tournaments and then specific games will have... Um, will have particular value because they correspond to points and they're higher up the ladder. So you can actually think about their motivation. And if they if they have a game where they perform very well, very poorly, you can also look and measure the, the sort of impact it would have on follow-on games and so on and so forth. So, so there is a logic to it, which is, can I model those factors? Can I think about them in a, in a parametric way? And then there's the unstructured way, which is, I have all this data, can I make sense out of it? Are there patterns that can emerge? And then we kind of try to combine both. Um, 
And, you know, in, in some ways, we also try to sort of generate our own data by using, you know, uh, methods to extract information from live video, where we track players, information of players, and uh, we look at those things to, again, ascertain all those aspects. So not just the expectation, but really how do teams play? Is there a particular part of the game that they their energy picks up? Will they relax if they if they achieve a certain scoreline and so on and so forth? How predictable... Uh, actually, sorry, let me start that again. How accurate are you trying to be with your predictions? Like I know in sports betting there, you can get particular types of bets or opportunities that have a really high uh, kind of payoff compared to payout compared to risk. That's a really good question, actually. That's, that's, that's a really good question because there's the concept of long term, right? Which is, is we try to, what I would say is we try to do very well in the long term. So we try to have an edge over the market over the long term. And then the natural response to that is, well, what's long term, right? So that really depends on the horizon of your trades. So if you are placing bets, let's say, dead ball that you will hold throughout the duration of the entire game, you basically are hoping that over the period of a season, you your predictions, you know, will be, some will be great and some will not so be, be so great, but... On average, you have, you know, somewhere between a one to three percent differential versus what the market predicts, basically. So if the market is predicting that someone's going to win a game by fifty percent, you're hoping that, you know, uh, really you're realizing somewhere between fifty-two to fifty-three percent to be profitable over the period of a season. Uh, if if you are doing that in play, obviously because you can place a lot more bets, then you can afford to be more higher margins of error. Uh, but the flip side of that is that uh, actually what's happening is the markets in play are a lot more inefficient than double markets. But sometimes it's harder to put your position on because the market is moving around so quickly. So it really is a is a is a combination of those two things, right? Is you 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 want to have a prediction accuracy that is better versus what the market is pricing, not in absolute terms, because again we're trying to beat a market, not not our job I guess is is to make money, is not to be right. Um as traders. So I think that's sort of a fundamental driver. Uh so we try to do that. And um and also, at the same time, we try to do it in the markets where we can, we certainly put our bets on at the best possible price versus our prediction. And are you ever trying to seek out arbitrage opportunities? Like instead of taking a view on a particular sports team and thinking these guys have a high probability that they're going to win this particular match, is it ever a case where you're taking different sorts of bets and you're looking for arbitrage opportunities, perhaps between, you know, the what one bookmaker is offering compared to another, or a situation similar to that? We don't we don't tend to look at it as much because it's it's not really as I would say it's a great strategy to do for individuals or or smaller traders. For us, that we. We are kind of a wholesale operation, I would say. It's less profitable. 
because it requires you to deploy, you know, it, the margins are really, really small and you have to be really, really fast. And, and, um, there's an actual limit to how much money you can make, right? Because because really you are you are limited by the time to access the market. Those ARBs don't last around for a very long time. They're they're usually very infrequent. Now, having said that, we tend to we do tend to look at if there's arbitrage value, but mostly as a signal for our for our models. And the reason the reason for that is because it does tell you which side of the market the bookmakers are more willing to give you risk on. So if you think about it, the reason bookmakers open themselves up for arbitrage is because they don't have a place where they can clearly, uh, they can clear their own risk, right? So they're hoping that by opening them up, themselves up for an ARB, people would take them out of the residual positions they don't want. And that happens by normalizing normalizing the, the, the value equations. Um, again, just to shift gears here, I know we've only got another few minutes before you've got a, got a run, Andreas, but I'd like to speak with you a little bit about artificial intelligence uh, because I know that plays a big part in, in what you're doing there at Stratagem. I think one of the questions I would like to ask you about this you know, when we hear AI to anyone who's not involved in the space, it sounds like a very sophisticated thing, and, and rightly so. <laughs> uh, do you feel as though by using AI and some of these more sophisticated techniques that you're able to achieve greater returns than, uh, you know, let's say a, a professional gambler would have 10, 20 years ago? Yes. I mean, the answer is absolutely yes. So, um, but I think the, it's a combination of both, uh, the, the misconception, I guess, in the public space is that the models are what drives the difference. And I, I'd say there's, you know, we owe a lot to more complicated and more sophisticated models that are out there, but there are two artifacts that really drive success in machine learning AI. One is the quality of your data. So the better the data you have, the better your predictions. And the second is the ability to do scalable compute. So the the prevalence of AI has happened over the last few years because availability in compute power has, has become cheaper and cheaper. And we've been, you know, um, benefactors of that. Sorry, we benefited from that. So I, I, I would say that, yes, absolutely. And, and we continue to, and one of the things that we're very proud of is that we continue to both push the research boundaries in terms of AI research, but also the applications of it. We do spend a lot of time trying to find the right models and can we collect the right data and so on and so forth. And I think that's what drives a lot of our edge is that we we try to stay at the forefront and try new and different things every time. Yeah, so, so and, and I think that is differentiating everything really right so it's it's happening in the mainstream markets and it's definitely happening in the sports markets and in a way i would say it's much more uh appealing and applicable to sports markets for the reasons we talked about earlier which is that the rules of the game tend to be static right so because the environment at which you're trying to predict is kind of there is noise around the prediction but it's within boundaries right so you will never have you know a 2008 lehman crisis type event in sports right because the rules of the game don't change um 
so I think those are the the fundamental drivers of of um, of success of AI in in sports. When you say the rules don't change, what about like regulatory rules and that sort of thing? Does that have an impact on on what you do? I think if anything, it will have a positive impact because uh, regulation tends to open up mar- will tend to open up markets in this case. Most markets are closed right now, so there are very few betting venues around the world or where betting is legal. But I think because regulation is going to change, taxation is going to come in, people are going to legalize, they're starting to legalize gambling around the world. I think that's going to open up the markets significantly. Okay. And how about like the US? I mean, I'm in Australia, but in the US, from my understanding, there's only a couple states which gambling is legal. We don't have a a clear view on what's going to happen in the US as a company, but we are very eager and alert, I would say, observance in what's happening. I'll put it to you that way. We are we are very we're very keen to find out how things will unfold over the next eighteen months. But we are hopeful the market will open. And just uh, sort of taking a step outside of uh, betting and financial markets, etc. You're also quite involved in artificial intelligence as like a technology. Yes. When we hear about artificial intelligence in the media and you know online through different sources, it's often very, or it seems like it's often very hyped up, okay? Like obviously uh, journalists are trying to get you to click and, and read the articles, but from someone who's like almost on the inside, do you think it is overhyped or do you think... Uh, or do you think we're really starting to make some headway into uh, artificial intelligence developments? I, I think both sides of your argument are true. I think there's a, a great, great exaggeration in the press on what's happening. Um, the reality is we've ma- we've managed to master you know playing computer games from the 1980s. That that's the actual factual evidence. Right, the, most of the successes we've seen are on, on on simulated computer games and simulated events, and starting to see applications in robotics. Now, having said that, that's attracting a lot more people into the space, a lot more money into the space, and that fuels development. And I, I would go as far as saying that AI is going to have an impact on the world similar to what electricity had a hundred years ago. So it's it's going to dramatically change everything that we do, um, and it's going to make things a lot more easier for the everyday life. But also, it will open up fundamental questions about you know how much automation and how much I guess artificial intelligence should we allow in our everyday to day activity. And I think for the markets, the interesting thing is the structure of the market is going to change because automation and robotics are making things a lot more difficult for the everyday human trader yeah okay and would you say that's across the board or just on very short time frames i i actually think it's starting to be across the board how so well because you see a lot of the bigger hedge funds are essentially investing a lot of time on both long-term and short-term predictions using machines i would say that in the microscopic um, price formation, so from seconds to minutes, I think it's really hard to compete against machines. 
and the natural evolution of that is they're going to have they're going to start expanding the time horizon at which they make decisions and then compute is going to be getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so making longer term predictions which is really what you're saying is going to become easier for for machines so i think that there's are there's already a dominant in the short term time frame in uh and i think that is going to easily translate through time to longer time frames so the impact is going to be felt across the board now having said that there's always going to be parts of the market that are really hard to to trade for machines like you know financial markets will be emerging markets or distressed debt things that require still human expertise uh, but in my markets like sports where you know everything looks and appears similar to a computer game then I think that's going to be a lot less uh the impact is going to be a, a lot greater mm. watch this space <laughs> yes all right andreas i know you've got to run uh just before you do though if someone wants to find out more about yourself or stratagem or artificial intelligence even where is the best place to go go to our website stratagem.co uh there's a lot of information around the company I encourage everybody to give a shot and a, um, a try to Stratabet and Strata Pro. And I think uh, in terms of AI, uh, one of the best resources for me is the MIT Technology Review. It's a good place to go online and, you know, check layman's articles that are written by experts. And, you know, anyone who wants to drop me a note on LinkedIn or, or over email to find out more, they're more than welcome to. Very good. All right. Well, as uh, listeners know, I'll dig up all those links and pop them in the show notes. So, Andreas, really appreciate you doing the podcast, man. Let's, uh, let's keep in touch. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. You've reached the end of this episode of Chat with Traders. But rest assured, there are more episodes loaded with real market insight and zero hype on the way soon. So to stay updated with each great new release, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. And we'd love it if you'd leave a rating and review. We'll catch you next time on Chat with Traders. Chat with Traders.